Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. And this is London, but coming to you, of course, all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet and sputniknews.com. We're on FM, crystal clear, in the Washington, D.C. area, 105.5 are the magic numbers there. We're on AM across the United States of America, from coast to coast. Uh, but uh, most of you will be watching rather than merely listening uh, to this show, and you can do that right now. Uh, and the best place would be either Facebook or YouTube, either my own Facebook page. And if you are doing that, please share, share with everyone on your contact list on Facebook because they won't let us pay to share it with other people. We're counting on you doing that for us voluntarily. More than half a million people last week. That's, I think, seven or eight straight half million plus audiences on Facebook and YouTube, either my YouTube channel or RT's multiple YouTube channels, either my Facebook or RT's multiple Facebook channels, uh, 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 portals, or you can watch on Twitter, you can even watch on Instagram. But however you're watching or listening, you've come to the right place. If you want a view contrary to the prevailing narrative, Challenging everything, questioning more. That's what we do. And no views are barred. Mine are these. Uh, this is, at heart, not a black and white question. Uh, this is a revolt of the millennials. It's a revolt of the people who either came of age or were born even after the turn of the 21st century who realized instinctively at first and now can read in black and white uh, that the future for them uh, looks grim, that they are a generation that cannot look forward to a better life than their parents had, in fact, can almost certainly look forward to a worse life than their parents had. Of course, that uh, underlying uh, assumption of mine is acted on by many things. Uh, the first is the special oppression, the special exploitation of people of color uh, in most places in the world, in fact, uh, but nowhere more so than in the United States. Born of the original sin of the looting, yes, capital L, looting of the entire subcontinent from the people who lived there whose land it was. Columbus didn't discover America. There was 100 million people already living there. They called them the Red Indians. We call them the Native Americans. Where are they now? Uh, well, uh, almost entirely wiped out in one of the worst genocidal bouts 
of white colonial power in history, and there have been many more. I should have mentioned Belgium earlier, where they're trying to tear down the statue of Leopold of the Belgians, a man who personally, not the state, who personally owned what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo and massacred millions of Africans there in the process of looting, yes, capital L, looting uh, the Congo. And of course, Leopold was merely more gruesome uh, than the other imperialist warlords who sacked Africa and stole everything that they could carry, including the human beings that Edward Colston, the Bristol slave trader, shipped out of Africa across the sea to work until they dropped as enslaved people in chains, the property of white slave owners. That's what Edward Colston was. He transported more than 80,000 black Africans from Bristol, from Africa to the United States and the Caribbean. 10,000 of those slaves that Colston transported died on the voyage in those ships that Bob Marley sang about, those slave ships. Now, the big question, as I said in my introduction, is why there was ever a statue to a slave trader in Bristol in the first place, certainly in modern times, seems inconceivable uh, that you would commemorate such a man. But when you look more closely, practically everything in Bristol is named after Edward Colston because, of course, like many a magnate, he donated a small portion of the profits that he had made from the blood of the Africans are two good works in his home city of Bristol. Uh, there's not just a statue. That building behind the statue is named after him. There's a grammar school named after him, a girls' school named after him. There's parks named after him. And of course, he was just one of the slavers uh, who built their entire financial empire on the enslavement, brutal killing, torturing, and enslavement uh, of black African people. So don't act surprised if in the middle of a wave of protests against racism against black people uh, that the statue of a slaver ends up in the drink, the very drink that, as I said, he once made foam with the blood of black Africans. But of course, it's not just Bristol. It's not just Bristol and Liverpool. It's not just Bristol and Liverpool and Glasgow and London. The British Empire was built on the enslavement of Africans. So the next time you see a black fellow walking down the street and you feel a bit nervous, just remember, he's got much more to be nervous about of you than you do of him. So racism, police brutality, my God, have you ever seen anything like the activities of New York's finest, Philadelphia's finest, the finest in LA, 
in Florida, in Houston? Have you ever seen anything like these videos that are coming out hourly on social media of U.S. police ruthlessly brutalizing women? I saw them today shoot a man in a wheelchair in the face, in the face, in his wheelchair. They are kneeling on people's necks, still. They are choking people, still. Well, I suppose habits die hard because last year alone, United States police officers killed 1,100 people in a single year. The British police in the same year killed three people. And one of them was the terrorist at London Bridge. 1,100 people in a year, and overwhelmingly they were black people, people of color. And now in Washington DC, uh, they are reaping the whirlwind. So gigantic are the crowds in DC, outside the White House, that the president is almost certainly in a bunker. Yes, a bunker where he's firing off orders, pronunciamento, remind you of anyone, remind you of any time in history, bunker boy. He declared earlier this week in the Rose Garden that he was going to send uh, the United States military, the Marines, the Airborne Division onto the streets of his own country, occupying his own country with his own country's armed forces. Makes a change, of course, uh, from invading and occupying uh, these cities of other people. Now, he was promptly contradicted by his own defense secretary and by the chief of his military. And it hasn't happened yet and may not happen, uh, but it's a sign of the desperation of the political class in the United States. The Republicans, of course, are calling all the shots, but they can only do so because of the active collaboration of the so-called opposition party, the so-called Democrats. In fact, as I said here last week, and as my guest, Chris Hedges, said here last week, Joe Biden and Barack Obama, and in particular Joe Biden, the now Democratic Party challenger, to Donald Trump, they actually wrote the textbook. They wrote the handbook, uh, which has led to the kind of atrocious violence that we have seen in the United States over the last 12, 13 days. It was Joe Biden that consigned uh, half a nation full of black Americans uh, to the gulags of the prison system, which have been turned, paradoxically or not, into profit centers. Uh, they are America's uh, cheap labor in these prisons. And they actually need an endless supply of workers going into the prison to keep the profits rolling. Joe Biden is the author of all of that. Joe Biden uh, is the man who gave the eulogy to Thurmond the uh, the ideologue, the guru uh, of segregationism in the United States. He can try and rewrite 
his own history. He can invent his role in the civil rights movement of which there is not a scintilla of evidence. Neither was he arrested in South Africa trying to reach Nelson Mandela. That was me, Joe. That was me. You plagiarized me. Joe Biden is not the man to confront racism in Washington or in the United States of America. But as I said at the beginning, this is not actually a black and white issue. Of course, color, race, act as exacerbators of pre-existing conditions. Let me tell you something from my own life. In 1984-85, as an honorary member of the National Union of Mine Workers, we faced every single day shocking, appalling, brutal, a police savagery on the picket lines and far from the picket lines, far from them, during that minor strike. And every one of us was white. Not even coal dust to be seen. White working class people defending their communities, their livelihoods, fighting not for money but for the right to continue working in the pits around which were built their communities of hundreds of thousands of people. The cops were all white and the miners were all white and 90% of their supporters who were not miners were white. You didn't need a black face in Britain in 1984-5 to be clubbed by the police and for it to be lied about for it to be turned on its head as if it was you that clubbed the police and not the other way around. Every Saturday evening in the 1980s, for months, I stood at the gates of Wapping with the print workers, being charged by police horses, and all of the printers were white, and all of the cops were white. Over the last 15 months, the yellow vests in France, overwhelmingly white, were attacked with the most appalling, vicious violence by the state forces in France, who cared not that they were the same color as the cops doing the attacking. The police, the security services, the state exists to protect the status quo, the prevailing orthodoxy, the current balance between rich and poor, the current balance of power in our society. So, that being so, let me repeat what I said earlier. I'm against riots. I've always been against riots. Riots are not revolts. Riots are not revolution. Rockets go up in the sky like riots in a blaze of flames and color, but they come down like a burnt stick and they leave only scorched earth behind them. The scorched earth of other people's property, the scorched earth of other people's lives. And even worse than that, they strengthen uh, the power, they strengthen the narrative of the powerful against whom all of us ought to be ranged. Uh, they help the right, they help reaction, and eventually uh, 
the black hundreds, like those pogromists in Russia before the revolution, uh, the reaction will move onto the streets and the blood and violence will be terrible. Uh, the armed reactionaries in the United States, the armed gunmen of Trumpism uh, cannot be long delayed from coming on to the streets of America and they will do so if they can. Hiding behind a narrative that these people are not protesters, these people are not even revolutionists, these people are mindless anarchistic thugs who are killing and maiming and breaking and inflaming and destroying everything in their path. Uh, so most of the people on the streets of London uh, over this weekend, and they're still on the streets right now, most of those people had no intention to harm anyone. Uh, but there is a small contingent who stay behind, whose purpose is uh, to do as much damage, create as much mayhem as they possibly can. And not only is that wrong morally and in principle, it is wrong in practice because it can only divide our people at a time when they need to be united. Uh, to desecrate war memorials is a crime against the memory of those who died to protect our freedoms. To desecrate Churchill, for example, who undoubtedly was a racist, he's in our Hall of Fame and our Wall of Shame, for God's sake. But if it wasn't for Churchill becoming Prime Minister in 1940, we would all be slaves. We would all have been enslaved under the great slaver, Adolf Hitler. So th this kind of action is foolish. It's foolish, it's ignorant, uh, and it helps uh, the enemies against which these brave demonstrators are ranged. Now, my last point in the time I've got available is on the coronavirus. It is evident uh, that the lockdown, quarantine, social distancing is all now defunct. Although, as I said last week, we never really had a lockdown. We never really had quarantine. Because right from the very beginning, I'm leaving aside the weeks that the government had to act and didn't, but just from the beginning of when they did act, they called it a lockdown, but it wasn't. They called it quarantine, but it wasn't. They called for social distancing, but there was none. They sent inessential workers out to work day after day, infecting each other, as well as the transport workers who had to carry them to work. They allowed the Cheltenham Racing Festival to be attended by a quarter of a million people. They allowed the Atletico Madrid-Liverpool game to go ahead, again infecting thousands of people. They allowed 24 million people to fly into Britain, often from 
the very epicenters of what was then a raging pandemic, uh, which has now laid waste to millions of people's lives and has killed hundreds of thousands of people. There was no lockdown. And now there isn't even the pretense of a lockdown. Now, one of the reasons why I was not demonstrating on the streets of London today is because it seems to me self-evident uh, that we in Britain and in the United States are going to suffer a second wave of coronavirus infection, which will potentially dwarf uh, the first phase, which has been so ruinous, so disastrous. I wear gloves. I wear a mask. I scarcely go out because I believed in what to me was the obvious point that if you stay far enough away from as many people as you possibly can, then you will slow down uh, the transmission of this virus. All of that is now defunct. And they accelerated towards its current position of defunct when Boris Johnson, while I was on the air just a couple of weeks ago, ordered everyone back to work, ordered the shops, inessential shops, to reopen. And before long, uh, we will, I'm sure, uh, be reaping the whirlwind of that ghastly, grotesque error of judgment too. And then again, we'll pay a price for having neglected, atrophied, and sold off so much of the essential public infrastructure that we would have needed to successfully fight against this great challenge of the coronavirus. It's only six months ago, you were wishing people a happy new year. Amazing, isn't it? 2020 is definitely turning out to be a year to remember and not for a good reason either. Now there's a poll up and running. Should slave traders, statues, and street names be removed? A, yes, B, no. And you can vote now on my Twitter feed. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now the one and only Lee Camp, presenter, writer on U.S. politics, joins us now from stateside to talk about what has been, Lee, by any standards, a remarkable week. How did it look to you? 
Yes, it's been an incredible couple of weeks uh, here in the United States. Uh, I, I live and work in D.C., and so I did a couple of days trying to uh, social distance as best I could, but it's uh, obviously difficult out there. But I did go to the protest uh, a couple of times. I wasn't at any of the ones that ended up with the uh, massive police crackdown on uh, largely peaceful protesters. I, uh, the ones I went to and the one last night I was at, uh, you know, thousands upon thousands of people, but uh, completely peaceful. It seems Trump has been forced to do a 180 uh, when he was earlier uh, was this week said, telling, telling governors and, and mayors to crack down on demonstrators as hard as possible. He said, quote, lock them up for 10 years and you won't have this problem. Uh, and now he's withdrawing the, the military forces. I saw very few cops there last night and uh, really thousands of people coming from uh, all around Washington, D.C. And obviously this was going on in cities around America. But uh, it, it seems that that has been, they've had to pull that 180 because they spent a week of such violent, horrific crackdowns on protesters and uh, attacks on journalists uh, attacks on, on medics. It, it really was a horrific first week, and now it seems they've been forced to back off a little bit. Yes, uh, when I saw the defense secretary uh, say that he was opposed to the invoking of the Insurrection Act, uh, when, uh, when the military chief uh, indicated, uh, not overtly but implicitly, that uh, he'd been taken by surprise by Donald Trump's uh, call and he didn't think uh, that the military was the answer uh, to social unrest and people exercising their rights under the U.S. Constitution. Do you think that that Donald Trump would have been taken by surprise by resistance even within his own administration, Lee? Maybe. I mean, it's tough to know what makes him uh, tick. It, it seemed pretty obvious that his that uh, truly insane. Uh, attack on protesters where he then did the photo op out in front of the church, which is right there on uh, uh, Lafayette Park, um, which the church wasn't even open, so it didn't even make any sense. But it seemed very much that what made him do that was people were calling him, uh, I, I don't know, a weenie or a wuss or whatever uh, the terminology is for not uh, for, for being in his bunker during the first night of uh, very strong, very agitated protests. But, you know, the 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 cause of this violence, a, a large degree of it, is clearly at the heels of the police. They are militarized. Uh, they were uh, attacking peaceful protesters. There's obviously a lot of police infiltration, although it's tough to know how much. But, uh, you know, and, and they've been in the past. You know, in past years, it's been clear that police have uh, started off uh, violence by breaking windows and such in order to allow a more violent crackdown of peaceful protesters. Uh, and, you know, I spoke of the attack on journalists, which has been truly amazing to see across the country. Uh, of course, the most the one that's been seen the most is CNN themselves getting arrested uh, initially uh, in Minnesota. Now, they, CNN was truly taken aback to watch their journalists get arrested like that. But, of course, that happens to independent media all the time. And, in fact, uh, your Sputnik colleague, uh, Nicole Roussel, who we just heard in a commercial for Loud and Clear, she was at the D.C. protests and holding up her press badge, yelling to the cops that she was press, and she was shot seven times 
times with a combination of rubber bullets and pepper bullets. Uh, and it seemed that they were clearly aiming for her, knowing that she was pressed. Unbelievable. Uh, in, the, uh, in the light of all of this, uh, what have the Democrats had to say? <laughs> yeah, well, they're, you know, the Democrats are the masters of uh, meaningless gestures. So uh, the D.C. mayor, uh, who is, I believe, a Democrat, uh, Bowser, she helped make sure they've just painted Black Lives Matter on uh, several blocks uh, there in front of the White House, which everybody's been talking about. Uh, and, you know, I'd rather it be there than not be there, but I don't think it actually amounts to a hill of beans if it doesn't come with a large-scale systemic change to a police system that is killing a 1,000 people a year. Uh, it, it, uh, painting something on the blocks doesn't matter. And this seems to be the, the common uh, thread with Democrats is that they say they're going to create change. They act like they stand with the protesters. And then when push comes to shove, where are they? Have they actually uh, done, created any change uh, for the American people in a completely militarized policing system? And of course, the, the one of the worst uh, in connection to this growth of the policing system in America is Joe Biden, who helped put forward the drug laws in the 1990s that then doubled or over doubled the uh, the the prison population here in America. There are more black people in prison right now than there were slaves back when slavery was in America. And it is just a horrific system that was pushed by Joe Biden, signed by Bill Clinton. And, you know, Joe Biden has one of the worst records when it comes to this uh, incredible prison state we have here and uh, policing system that that just is, is designed to keep the, the downtrodden and oppressed in their space, in their spot. And, uh, and and really keep a, a, a class structure, uh, you know, as the status quo, rather, rather than allowing uh, people to have a, any true kind of freedom. In amidst all this complexity, uh, how do you see it impacting on the November elections, assuming they go ahead? Uh, if they go ahead, uh, obviously Trump will run as your law and order president. He will seek to uh, identify the Democrats with the huge protest movement uh, and especially with any negatives uh, that can be associated with it. Do you think all this helps or hinders uh, the possibility of a second Donald Trump term? Well, I think it largely hurts, uh, you know, Donald Trump's re-election chances because, you know, when you see a country on fire and you see uh, people being killed and arrested by our policing system, uh, a lot of people put the, you know, the buck stops with the president and they believe it's at the president's feet, even if that system of policing has been going on for generations. Uh, it, it, same with, you know, economic crisis, that uh, that, could, that should hurt Trump and uh, as well as the pandemic. and. and and how terrible that's been and the chaos that he's helped create with the pandemic response. Um, I, I think all of that should hurt his reelection chances. However, uh, I, I think that he still has a very good shot at getting reelected because of the massive number of people. And again, you know, this gets to racial issues as well. Massive number of people that have been su uh, suppressed and purged from our voter rolls. Uh, the, the investigative journalist Greg Palace puts the number at 17 
15 million Americans. One out of every 12 Americans have been purged from the voter rolls, uh, largely black and brown people. Uh, over the past uh, four to eight years. So all of that will help Trump immensely. Um, and then, of course, there's there's the fact that even though this may help Joe Biden, like I said, he is no he, he considers himself Mr. Police. Uh, he is no friend of the, uh, you know, uh, minorities in America. So even though he may claim to be and he repeatedly claims to be. But, uh, you know, no one's done more to uh, put uh, non-white people in prison than Joe Biden. So even though this stuff may hurt Donald Trump a little, it, uh, it, 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 in a rightful system, in a, a system where everyone understands the reality, it shouldn't help Joe Biden. Now, the coronavirus uh, rages still. Uh, how are your uh, numbers faring? And are you expecting a big spike, a second wave of coronavirus infection? Uh, because in your country and in mine, uh, the, all these weeks that we spent socially distancing and staying home and so on have surely now been undone. Yeah, I, I imagine there will be a large secondary spike. Uh, I'm walking around D.C. I've, I've noticed that people seem to think that uh, the the mask is mainly used to cover their neck area below their chin. Uh, everyone seems to have them on their faces, but then pull them down below their chins. So we all we all have thoroughly protected our chins apparently from getting coronavirus. Uh, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. I, I don't know that people really understand uh, how how viruses work and how they're spread. Uh, this probably hasn't helped the that is how much confusion has been sown by. A a combination of the Trump administration, but but you know other officials as well. You know the CDC saying initially don't wear masks, then do wear masks, and uh, all of that has not helped. So it wouldn't at all surprise me if there is a second spike. Uh, but you know uh, Americans, we we have a maybe more than some countries a tendency to say uh, you know screw it, I want my freedom. And so uh, you may see a lot of America, as we already have, say, well, I, I don't care if I kill my grandparents. I'm, I want to go out to the barber shops." And uh, there seems to be a lot of that behavior going on. Lee Camp, the legend, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Always welcome indeed. Uh, comments in response to the poll. If there is a democratic consensus, then yes, these statues should be removed. But mob rule is not the answer. I prefer the statues stayed and they were used to teach people of our past wrongdoings, to continually remind us to do better instead of just being cancelled or vandalised. And Jerry said, we should accept our history, use it to educate so future generations learn that the end doesn't justify the means. And Kevin says, what's next when we're finished? Do we move on to anyone in history? who offended the Asian population or the gay population? Why don't we knock everything down that white people were involved in? That should just about cover it. Well, it certainly unmasks you, Kevin, uh, because uh, Colston did not offend black African people. He dragged them by their hair into boats and locked them in the hold in chains, and then he sailed them across the seas and unloaded them in America, selling them as slaves. 
in chains to work until they died their children themselves to be inherited slaves. He didn't offend gay people or offend Asian people. He murdered black people. The fact that you can sit down and write that is emblematic of everything that is a problem here in this country. Greg says, yes, they should be removed, but not by mob rule vandalism. Mrs. A says, no, because the full story needs to be told. Different times and airbrushing isn't the answer. Cities were built on the proceeds through wealth and philanthropy. Yet Britain under Wilberforce was a global leader in ending slavery, including paying to free slaves. Yeah, they paid to free slaves, Mrs. A. Unfortunately, they didn't pay the slaves. They paid the slave owners as compensation for having to release their slaves. Wow. Well, the poll indicates uh, that these correspondents have a lot of support. Should slave trader statues and street names be removed? A, yes, 55%. B, no, 45%. You can vote now on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. More than a thousand of you have already. Well, breaking news, uh, quite serious trouble seems to be erupting in central London, just like Saturday night where things went quiet for two, three hours. They suddenly seem uh, to have erupted again. This looks like the Admiralty Arch, uh, which uh, leads uh, to the Mall. Uh, so the protesters would be standing on the... Uh, on the Trafalgar Square side of that. Uh, there seem to be rather uh, a good number of them, and uh, not right at this minute, but there have been attempts uh, to push through. Uh, not a huge number, as you can see, uh, but uh, a substantial number, enough for a running battle, uh, which I'm sure uh, is a very real and present danger now. There were earlier people uh, protesting at Buckingham Palace, uh, this must be, uh, would be uh, reinforcements. Uh, Captain Cook's statue is nearby there. That would be a tempting target, the man who caused uh, the conquering of uh, Australia and the subsequent, consequent, you might say, uh, annihilation of the Aboriginal uh, population. Uh, I wonder if the protesters know that, as I do. Uh, not that many police yet, but you see one or two objects uh, being thrown. I presume the police have many in reserve, and the police are doing a bit of pushing back there now on that arch uh, to the left. Uh, we'll keep you, of course, uh, updated uh, with these things. Uh, it is important to stress, there were at least... 20,000 people on the demonstration in London earlier today, and there might be a 1,000 uh, there uh, at the Arch. The other 19,000 went home uh, perfectly peacefully, having exercised their democratic right to protest. Uh, but there's always an element, some of whom may be provocateurs, as Lee Camp mentioned earlier, on both sides of the Atlantic. We have had them, you know. Uh, here's Brandon in Manchester.
on line one. Go ahead, Brandon. Hi, George. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Uh, obviously, troubled times, but uh, we'll get through them. Uh, what would you like to say? Well, basically, you're a point on saying that, you know, millennials, that yeah. we, you know, we're using these protests, well, some of us, I think that we're using these protests as a way to, you know, voice our anger at the government, because basically we, people in the 20s, in the teens, I feel like we're the forgotten generation of this time. I mean, we've got very little jobs, we've got low-paid jobs, we've got low-hour jobs. I mean, we, we've got basically nothing. We've got no hope for the future. We're all living in rented accommodations. And these protests, you just seem so angry. And I think people are using these protests to vent the anger of, yeah. you know, just well, having uh, nothing. I, that's definitely my take on it, as you heard in my short and in my introduction. Yeah. Uh, the, I looked at the 29 arrests from yesterday in London. All yeah. 29 of them, 100% uh, of them, were millennials. And half of them were of no fixed address. Uh, and that tells me a lot on both counts. And it buttressed my point of view that I had expressed earlier in the week uh, on my short for RT, uh, that this is... Uh, this is the angry young rising up. Of course, the proximate cause is police brutality in America. Uh, but, the, yeah. but that's only the proximate cause. That's the spark. Uh, the tinder uh, has been created uh, by the hopelessness, economic hopelessness, uh, of uh, now a whole generation of young people uh, who have no proper jobs to look forward to, even if they go to university and graduate, who have no contracts, no secure work, uh, low-hour jobs, as you said, low-paid jobs, no possibility whatsoever of getting onto the housing ladder uh, in the private rented sector because there are no council houses, of course, uh, being built, and most were sold off. Uh, and uh, Boris Johnson's about to bring three million Chinese people from Hong Kong, <laughs> imagine what that will do to the rented sector uh, also. Uh, there's hopelessness abroad in not just Britain, but we are benighted by a political class on both sides of the House of Commons who have deliberately, as a matter of policy, eschewed offering anybody any hope. That uh, Troy McClure that's now leading the Labour Party. Keir Starmer. Somebody said he was sitting on the fence earlier. He is the fence. Chrysotum, paint him and see if I'm right. And Boris Johnson's words fail me. This man has hardly done a full day's work in 2020 for one reason or another. Pregnancies, holidays, romance, Romantic difficulties, the coronavirus. He's hardly been at work. He's reportedly taking two-hour naps in the daytime because of his own underlying health problems now. He looks ravaged. His colleagues are losing confidence in him. Britain scarcely has a government at all, Brandon. 
yeah. I mean, it's just, I don't know, it's just ridiculous. I mean, basically, even big companies now are virtually saying to people that if you don't like the way we run things, if you don't like your low-paid jobs, if you don't like your low hours, then there's the door. And on your bike, well, yeah. On your bike. Yeah, and when you... And when you get fired, you, you pretty much, you can't pay your bills and you end up homeless. And when you're homeless, you, 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 there's no help available. So it's pretty much the same to you. You either work for us, do what we want, or you sit on the street and starve to death. Where are the unions, I wonder? Do we still have them? Brandon, thanks very much. On line two is Adrian, who is at the protest now in London. Adrian, what's going on? Hi, sir. How's it going, sir? Um... Uh, nice to speak to you, George. Uh, literally, for the, whole, the last few days, it's actually been a peaceful protest for the majority of it. What we've seen of the tabloids is there's 10 minutes of violence due to the overwhelming of the crowd. There's always some sort of, there's always some idiots there, and there's usually a lot of agent provocateurs. We don't know where they're from. They come together, literally, they come to cause trouble. But we've, we've just, we literally had a, a fourth, a put our foot down today. There would not be no trouble. But then these guys come nowhere at the end and they give the police what they want. And they can't, for some reason, the cameras are always there. But for the majority the protest, the cameras are never there. Uh, but but, but I, I believe it's Asian professionals a lot of the time. Uh, well, and, uh, and the, we... uh, of course, uh, Adrian, that. Uh... There, there are always agent provocateur uh, at protests, always. I myself have uh, played a part in unmasking one once upon a time. Uh, but there are also uh, people uh, whose purpose is uh, no, no protest, no demonstration is complete without broken heads and blood and, and uh, if possible, more. Uh, I led demonstrations of millions of people in this century where not so much as a litter offence was, uh, was uh, um, uh, carried out. Uh, but there are always people who would like to uh, turn these things uh, ugly. And what you described there is also my observation, both yesterday and today. There was a big protest, which then came to its natural end. Large numbers. I saw them. I walked through them uh, this evening of young black kids mainly uh, going away peacefully from the demonstration and then two hours later we get the issue uh, that's now emerging uh, at the Admiralty Arch uh, that's two days in a row exactly the same pattern Adrian ironically the cameras are always there sir and the police always have the, their riot gear. And then what happens is, what I've noticed from the mainstream media, the fake news is that you have the, L, oh, I don't want to call them by name, but, you know, to hell, uh, sorry, uh, uh, LBC, Sky News, they, 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 they portray the violence, 10 minutes violence, and not the eight hours of peaceful protest. And all they care about is the troublemakers, and that's all they want to sing. And they don't want to sing about all the good work that we've done in the whole day. And they don't give us our fair shot. Why is the mainstream... I went to journalist today, and I got angry with someone. They said, sir, if you're from Sky News, you're from the, the, the mainstream media, please, I beg you, in the name of God, portray the protest and not the violence, the small violence. And they all promised me, but I'm not too sure that they will keep to it. These camera crews. Adrian... 
Uh, stay safe, son, and thanks for making what is a very important call uh, indeed. Thank you uh, very much. Uh, so the polls raging now. 1,392 votes are in so far. You've still got more than an hour to vote. It's on my Twitter feed. Should slave traders' statues and street names be removed? A, yes, 57%, up to. A B, no, 43%, down to. I'm still astounded. Why would 43% of my audience want to keep slave traders' statues and street names up. I'm utterly bemused uh, by that. Now, uh, the coronavirus, whether it's over or not, whether government policy towards it is defunct or not, it's clear uh, that the economic damage uh, that has been done uh, will be considerable. But will it be as considerable as the uh, prophets of doom earlier prophesied? Uh, we were told the British... Uh, recession, collapse, depression, uh, was going to be the worst in many centuries. Uh, but some recent figures from China, from Russia, and from the United States indicate that the damage might not be as serious as people originally feared. Dr. Gerard Lyons, a good friend of ours, is one of the world's leading international economists. And he's agreed to join me now. Uh, to talk about how he sees uh, the economic future in the short and medium term. Dr. Lyons, thanks uh, very much uh, for coming on board again. You heard my point there. Uh, the initial results from China, from Russia, and from Donald Trump uh, indicate that the economic damage has perhaps not been as severe as people thought. What's your view on that? Well, good evening. It's a great pleasure to be on the show again. Um, the initial forecasts were very pessimistic, but even though the current situation might not be as bad as some people are initially saying, the reality is that we still have had a significant contraction in all major economies. Unemployment rates are very high, and even where unemployment rates are not as high as they might otherwise have been, that's because governments have kept people on schemes. So the reality is that one should still be pretty cautious. What we've seen is a situation where we have had a very deep recession, but as you indicated, China is showing signs of recovery. Now, different countries went into this virus and were impacted by it at different stages. So countries will come out at different speeds. China contracted in January and February. From China, we know the economy bounced back in March. It stabilized in April. And there are positive indicators there, but it's still far short of where it would otherwise have been if we had not had a virus. And just to conclude the answer, if we take the UK, for instance, this coming week, we will see data for April. In March, the economy contracted by close on 6% in that month alone. Forecasts are that April will see the biggest ever monthly decline in the economy. So April is likely to be the bottom. But even though the economy fell sharply between the first few months of this year in April, it will probably take from now until the end of next year to get back to that pre-crisis level. So even though it might not have been as big a hit as some people feared, it is still a pretty significant hit, and it's requiring major policy stimulus to allow the economies to start to recover. But the good news is that there are signs of recovery as lockdown is being taken away, and we're seeing unlocking taking place across different countries. Now, 
Just explain, if you would, why of necessity there would be a big hit. Let, let me take my own example. Uh, yeah. Over the last few months, I've spent hardly anything, nothing like I would normally spend. Uh, I'm not filling up my car. I'm not going to restaurants. I'm not going to shops except food shops. Uh, so I've got the money that I would have spent uh, in those uh, few months. What's to stop me spending it now as soon as I can later this month? And why does that not kickstart the economy? Whole combination of factors there, but you're right. If you and other people start to spend, and indeed if different companies are allowed to open up again after the unlocking, then the economy will bounce back. And indeed, that's what we are seeing. Now, I think it's important to put a whole combination of different factors together. We have a health crisis and an economic crisis. We're past the worst, maybe, in terms of the health crisis in many countries, but we are still in a vaccine gap. That means that the business models of many different sectors will still be impacted. If we take here in the UK, one million people work in the creative industries in the hospitality sector. Now, those companies in that sector, those individuals will see their outlook severely impaired because of the vaccine gap. Social distancing, for instance, affects restaurants, pubs, etc. So different sectors, different companies and different people will be impacted. In contrast, as you've touched on from your question, others will bounce back. The construction sector, which employs 2.3 million people in the UK, will bounce back to life as it is able to see everyone return to work post the unlocking. But in terms of how people will respond, there is pent up demand for some people, as you say, for yourself, you'll be able to go out and spend. But for other people, one needs to be cautious. Some people will start to save more post this because they will want to have more money sort of in the bank, so to speak, in case they are hit by a second wave. But of course, we must say that there is still a number of uncertainties out there, in particular, what is going to happen to employment. Here in the United Kingdom, and the same is true in many, most other major Western economies, a lot of people are being supported by government schemes. As many as 11 million people here are being helped by the government schemes. The government scheme is starts to be phased out fully at the end of July, and well, fully at the end of October, partially at the end of July. And what will happen to those people? Will they return to work or not? And whichever economy one looks at, the outlook depends on the interaction between the economic fundamentals, policy and confidence. The fundamentals will affect people in a different way. Policy will clearly have a big impact. And confidence is also a key factor, even for those people and those companies who have the ability to spend. Now, you mentioned government schemes and so on. And uh, when they were first announced, I remember it well, uh, the new chancellor then, uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, he seemed to be uh, promising the moon. Uh, there was an important uh, lacune, uh, lack of, uh, uh, of provision for self-employed people, but he seemed to be offering, and I use his words, whatever it takes. Did they live up to that promise, or are there a lot of uh, companies, businesses, that have been left short of what they thought they were being promised? Well, in the UK, it's been quite complex. Um, and indeed, that's maybe the biggest challenge. The schemes sounded very simple, but it was quite complex for some firms to find access to them. That's why, as we've gone through the various weeks of this crisis, the government has started to provide more. 
Uh, bounce back loans, for instance, were provided relatively recently to small firms. So the government initially um, could be criticised maybe for the schemes not being sizable enough and maybe being too complex. But they did, to give them credit, respond to that by providing more money and by making the schemes uh, less complex. One of the challenges, though, is that we will find some companies, particularly smaller ones, nursing high levels of debt. And indeed, in recent weeks, the banks, who have been the intermediary providing those loans on behalf of the government, banks have raised concerns about whether all those loans will be repaid. The challenge, George, when you look at the situation, it's hard to pick out precise economic numbers. Even in good economic conditions, economic forecasts have a wide margin of error. At this particular time, when there is so much uncertainty about the international environment, about the virus itself, as well as domestically, it makes it very difficult to look at pinpoint forecasts. So economists have tended to talk about the shape of the recovery, the shape of the letter of the recovery. Will it be a V-shape, down quickly, up quickly? Will it be a U-shape where we fell sharply, but we'll start to recover more gradually? The fear, of course, is an L-shape. We are down and then we don't see any recovery. It's like a depression. Or the other fear is a W-shape where we recover, then we're hit by a second wave. So it's quite complex. What we seem to have is that in the States, people are becoming more confident about a V-shape, although we still have considerable numbers unemployed there. I think it's going to be feel more like a U-shape. That is, we fell sharply here in Britain and indeed in other countries early this year, but it will take, we'll start to recover in the second half of this year, and it will be by the end of next year, but we're back to where we were before the crisis. And it will require the government, in my mind, to keep some of those schemes still in play, particularly for those sectors in the cultural creative sectors who are continue to be impacted by things like social distancing. Now, according to Trump, uh, he said it was a very great day. Even George Floyd would be looking down and saying it was a very great day. Uh, when he was signing some papers uh, just uh, yesterday or the day before uh, in the White House. Uh, it does seem, though, that the U.S. numbers were really quite considerably better uh, than I expected them to be, if we can believe those numbers. Can we? Well, in the fact, well, uh, the uh, employment figures, uh, it was pointed out there was the discrepancy in them last month and the previous two months. But even allowing for that, the figures did suggest a sharp rebound. Now, to put this in perspective, um, when you have such a fall in any economy and when the bulk of that fall is explained not just by the fear linked to the virus, but also linked to lockdowns, whether it's in the States or in Britain, when you start to un un unlock and the fact that you've fallen so far means that you do start to naturally bounce. The question, though, is whether that rebound will gather momentum. Now, the good thing is that we're seeing the virus, despite worries and uncertainties attached to it, the virus seems to be now brought it, being brought more under control. We are, as I touched on earlier, still in the vaccine gap, so we shan't, shouldn't be complacent. But the figures should start to show further improvement. And you're right, the US figures did bounce back more than people expected on the employment side. On the policy side in the States, the policy stimulus has been considerable. Now, to put this in a wider perspective, in the last 10 years, particularly in the wake of the global financial crisis, the policy stimulus was largely on the monetary side. 
In the last few years, not that people anticipated a pandemic, but in the last few years, the debate has been about the fact there's not been much room for monetary manoeuvre. And so that if we were hit by another crisis, central banks wouldn't be able to do much. Hence, we've gone into this crisis with a focus not just on what central banks can do, but also on what governments can do through fiscal policy. Now, in the States, the reality is that we've seen both a huge monetary stimulus, despite what everyone said, the central bank has said its policy easing will be unlimited. The balance sheet of the US Federal Reserve is set to double in size as they start to buy financial assets. And on top of that, Congress, Senate and the president himself have all combined to provide a huge fiscal stimulus. Now, here in the UK and on the continent, there has been huge stimulus as well, but maybe not as big as one is seen in the States. And I think it's important to stress that as companies come out of this lockdown and as companies start to return to normal, that actually starts to obviously see economies pick up. But to reiterate the point, we're likely to have to see still further stimulus in place. That is governments and central banks continuing to provide accommodative policies. Now, in the markets, I think the big issue is what is going to happen to inflation. So far this year, we've seen oil prices collapse. There's no pricing power. Inflationary pressures have subsided. But the big debate is what happens to inflation. If inflation stays low, as I think it will, then low inflation, low interest rates and low bond yields allow governments to be able to sustain higher levels of borrowing. And that will deter governments, particularly here in the UK, but also on the continent, from engaging in austerity or tax increases. So the stimulus is coming back to your question has been huge and helped in the States. But it's important to stress that if inflation remains low, as I think it will, interest rates and yields will remain low and that will allow governments to be able to borrow or sustain higher levels of borrowing without having to engage in austerity or tax increases. But if you were to see austerity or tax increases, then you start to see the recovery starting to be shaken by some of those policy measures. Dr. Lyons, thanks as always for your time and expertise. Dr. Gerard Lyons, international economist. Let me give you some breaking news from the Midlands. Uh, part of the M6 is closed tonight after reports that Black Lives Matter protesters have blocked the carriageway. Drivers were urged to seek alternative routes after the demonstration near Junction 3, the X-Hall interchange. Up to 100 people reported to be from the BLM movement are marching in the middle of the southbound carriageway. One motorist said the crowd blocked off the road with cones before police arrived on the scene to manage the traffic. The protesters in masks, some with placards, marched on the carriageway near Coventry. A police helicopter was circling the area and dog handlers are attending the scene. It is believed a rolling roadblock is in place. We'll keep you uh, posted uh, with that. Uh, should slave traders' statues and street names be removed? A, yes, 54%, down three. Somebody's been busy. Uh, or B, no, 46%, up three. Let's go to line one and hear Brian in Cornwall. Go ahead, Brian. Hiya, George. How's everything doing? I'm just appalled of what's happening uh, with all this race, racist stuff going on in, in the world at the minute. You know, being, being from a travelling background and had it all my life, you know, up until 
a couple of years ago when I was on your show again, I was speaking to you in, in uh, about my planning permission to get a, on a Brownfield site. I remember uh, that. Yes, I remember, Brian. Yeah, and it took me... I got it in the end. I, I actually won in the end after good help from the travel liaison officer and, and from uh, Dr. Angus Murdoch uh, for the planning consultant. We managed to uh, overturn the council's decisions and all uh, all the people now who I, I live down and I've gone into this community absolutely loved it because I'm here now. At first, you know, I had all the racist abuse you can ever think of. Even from a doctor, which was across the road from me, joined the parish council to get me off of my own land. It was absolutely disgraceful. But now, going on to all, the, all what's happening up in London, and down here in Plymouth, there, there was demonstrations today, but... No, no, uh, there was no violence, no nothing like that down here. Peaceful demonstrations, where, which is good. What they've done to this black man in America, absolutely disgraceful, disgusting. But what's happening in this country uh, with, with, with the black people stabbing each other up in London has been going on for, for many, many years now. Uh, on my own opinion, my own opinion this is, it's all to do with drugs and drug wars. The government should put more resources into stopping this devil-possessed drugs coming into this country. Well, uh, the, it's like uh, the lockdown. There was never a lockdown. There's never been a war no. on drugs. Never, never, ever, ever. And you see it, even down here in Cornwall, a little village in Callington down here, I won't even let my boys go down there because of drugs. And I had bought this up at, at council meetings and told them straight what's happening. They're dealing in it on the corners. I was in getting my hair cut and there they are on the corner dealing drugs. You know, I, I just... It, but, but the root of this, the, this is the root of this, because how, how are our children? They're growing up in this society. What, how are they going to know what's right and wrong? Quite so. Quite so, Brian. Uh, I'm glad you got your uh, planning uh, sorted out and the community is thriving, but you rightly remind us uh, of uh, racism against Roma people, uh, which has uh, scarred uh, your community and indeed our country uh, for uh, a long, long time. Uh, Brent in Southampton uh, is uh, on US politics. Let's hear from him, Brent. Yeah, hello. Um, I've noticed um, in America, and even to some extent in this country, extreme or far-right people waving the Confederate flag. Yeah. But shouldn't that be considered a bit unpatriotic or an un-American activity, considering the Confederacy uh, tried to break away from the United States? Yeah. And they also attacked a, uh, a federal military installation, whereas the protesters, I think, in Virginia... They've destroyed the statue of a Confederate general, someone who was, you know, fighting against the USA. Shouldn't they be considered actually uh, quite, quite patriotic? I think, I think we should take all these statues of these kinds of people and put them in a statue graveyard and take our school children there and go around that graveyard teaching our school children who these villains were and why they're villains, and why they're no longer now where they were, but are now in this prison uh, of statues uh, of villains. What do you think of that, Brent? Well, yeah, I agree. It's interesting that you didn't hear 
people on the right complain when uh, statues of Lenin and Marx were actually torn down oh, in uh, Eastern Europe. Saddam Hussein, they were exultant. They played it endlessly on the news. And that was in somebody else's country that they had invaded and occupied. Yeah, I mean, it just shows the sort of inconsistent thinking that people on the right have. I mean, I dare say you're going to get... Um, I'm surprised you haven't had right-wing callers calling in about complaining about those demonstrators. I think in uh, Bristol saying that they are, um, you know, they're breaking the lockdown and they well, can spread uh, the it, virus. Yeah, give it time, Brent. Uh, all calls are welcome, whatever uh, the point of view of the caller. Thanks uh, for that call. Uh, by the way, my editor scolds me that Eshkol was in fact the prime minister of Israel and not the president. My apologies. Uh, to him. Uh, David is in Brighton. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, David. Good evening, Tudor. How are you? By the grace of God, I'm good. Thank you very much. Go ahead. Oh, bless you, man. You are one of the men. If I have a chance, I'm 64 years old. I hope one day before I die to meet you. I'm one Thank of you. the individuals that I have great respect. Thank you. Allow me to ask you a question. What do you think about control opposition? You happened to be a few years back in the government. Uh, how do you mean? You mean the Labour Party? No, no. Well, I mean, I mean, I'm not talking about. I'm not taking a side, but from your point of view, a few years back, you happened to be in the Labour government, and uh, and you obviously are privy to the control opposition. And uh, basically, what I'm trying to ask you is, am I correct? Opinion in this situation at this present, it doesn't matter because it could happen to the right this moment, Labour government. Do I make sense? Uh, yeah, uh, of course. Uh, I think uh, Jeremy Corbyn dodged a bullet, actually. Uh, he's avoided uh, having to preside over uh, this coronavirus and all its consequences. And now the current situation, imagine if there were uh, thousands, tens of thousands of people throwing uh, missiles up Downing Street when he was in number 10. Uh, but our problem in Britain is exactly the same uh, as the problem in the United States, uh, that the two main parties are two cheeks of the same backside, uh, and neither is more appealing than the other. Neither is more uh, useful uh, than the other. Uh, and so we have no opposition, and the opposition here on a Sunday well, night that, for three hours. <laughs> in that case, allow me to uh, just uh, compliment this, because to that respect, whatever happened, we needed somebody like this man called Trump to get top of the layer of the triangle, get that money in order what he's doing. It could be goddamn labor. It could be anybody. It could be liberal government. It could be any institution as a party we know be in power and take control of that responsibility, which soon or later is going to be an open us, which happens. Well, uh, sooner, uh, sooner or later, we're going to have to have a real change in this country. Uh, but neither the, so why, neither, why the each other then? neither the Conservatives nor Labour will be uh, able or willing uh, to bring that about. Thank you, David. Let's go to Tim in Glasgow. Go ahead, Tim. Hello, George. It's uh, Tim here. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Welcome. Um, I'd just like to discuss about the slave trade in Glasgow. I'm actually appalled to hear that 
the amount of streets that have been named after people that have had connections to the slave trade, profiteers, yeah. such as Buchanan, who the, the main thoroughfare is named after. Buchanan, Ingram, Ingram is another? Ingram, that's another one. George, Glassford, Dunlop. There's also Trinidad, Trinidad Street, Tobago Street, Virginia Street. Even Portugal Street and the Gorbals, I think, has got a connection to it. So that's what a disgrace to the city. And I think they really should be taking a look at this now. Because, you know, it's a shameful. I'm very proud to be a Glaswegian, but I just find that, you know, a shame. Yeah, uh, you know, it's not like uh, nobody ever changes the names of, uh, of streets. Uh, yeah. Lots of streets of uh, get their well, names uh, changed. Uh, and, and it seems, I mean... Uh, Adam, always beat me how Labour, uh, in control of London, even Ken Livingstone, uh, didn't yes. change the name of Walworth Road. Uh, Walworth course, Road yes. was called after the man who tricked the leaders of the Peasants' Revolt, Watt Tyler mm -hmm. and John Ball, into a tent yes. to talk peace and then cut their heads yes. off. Uh, and of yet course. he got that big prestigious road in London called after him, <laughs> and no one's ever tried to change it. No, uh, I, I believe we ought to, and the the names that you mention in uh, in Glasgow, just like in Liverpool, in Bristol, in London, uh, are often called after criminals. You can't have a street called after a criminal and not do anything about it, can you? Well, no, especially a profiteer like Buchanan. Yeah. I mean, it's an absolute shame to the city. And, and I wonder how many of my fellow Glaswegians are actually aware of this. Well, there will be now, Tim, after your call. Yeah. Thanks very yeah. much for making it. Uh, Georgie says on Twitter, not only do I remember Betamax and VHS, but my son popped a sandwich in the VHS slot to see what would happen. <laughs> Brilliant. And Twitter user says, values change throughout time. <laughs> So predictable. Whenever I talk about slavery, I get exactly the same answers back. And these statues remind us of this. Healthy debate is the way forward, not the eradication of our past. Uh, Lorraine says statues and monuments are meant to unite us through memorializing shared struggle and victory. Idols of slave traders imply our correct collective approval of the roles they played in history. As such, they are an act of emotional violence on black people. And Celtic here says, even the word street comes from the Romans who enslaved us. How far do you want to take this? I'll settle for the 19th century. How about that? Uh, Jim, how about we release the Savile Files too and push for Epstein disclosure too? Modern day slavery through trafficking for wealthy paedophiles. I must say I've now watched the Netflix series in total twice uh, on Epstein. Uh, and I'm sure of many things. And I've never been more sure of anything uh, than that Epstein was murdered uh, with the collusion of rich and powerful people in the United States inside his jail cell. Uh, there are no circumstances in which I will ever believe that Epstein, who was about to go on the trial of the century, who had film and photographs of very important, powerful people engaged in sordid acts, oftentimes with young girls under 
the legal age of consent, therefore rape of young girls. Where did all those films and photographs go, by the way? Where are they now? Captain Thunk says serfdom was a form of slavery and built all the churches, castles, buildings and monuments before the 16th century. We don't have to pull them all down, do we? No, Captain, but your desperation to find an excuse for your support for the continued existence of 19th century slave traders and murderers is a remarkable thing. And that one is one of the most ingenious excuses for your own foulness that I have ever heard. So congratulations uh, on that. Shannon is in Houston, I presume in Texas, not in Ayrshire. We'll know in a second. Shannon, welcome. Hey, George. Hello. Good. You're definitely in Texas and not in Ayrshire in Scotland. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely not in England. I, I sometimes wish. Uh, well, my tongue is not long enough, unfortunately, to explain everything here. It would take hours. But, uh, you know, we have a precedent here uh, of tearing down statu statues uh, after Charlottesville. And that uh, white supremacist action, fascist march they had, um, you know, the reaction was tear down uh, Confederate monuments and slave trading monument, slave trader monument. Unfortunately, we have, uh, you know, most of the founding fathers were slave traders and owners. And, and I, I, I honestly fully agreed with tearing them all down. I had no issue with that at all. But, uh, you know, it, these, these folks that, uh, that try and, uh, uh, you know, rehistoricize or, uh, trying to explain away why, why slavery existed and it this white supremacy is is unfortunately rampant here i'll uh, tell you that it's also here uh, 52 yeah, percent 52 percent only of the people voting on my poll want to take these statues uh, down uh, and 48 percent uh, don't uh, and that's in a poll of 2124 uh, people uh, now is that in their hearts uh, not all of these who voted uh, against bringing these statues down uh, are supporters, closet uh, supporters of sure. slavery and of white supremacy, sure. but many of them are, even if they have not themselves recognized it in themselves. Many of them are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it gets into too many people personalize things and want to explain, well, what, I'm not bad that, because I'm white. No, of course not. But, it, it has nothing, but you it has are nothing bad if you're white it. and you but can't see why slavery in the 19th exactly. century absolutely. by us absolutely. was a bad thing. I'm, befu I'm befuddled and bepiffled by everything <laughs> that happens here. I'm, I, 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 I can't, I feel like I'm in a madhouse. And only a few of the inmates, uh, you know, want to get out. Uh, you, are, you are in a madhouse. Uh, We're all in a oh, madhouse, Shannon. We are, we are, my friend. We are, my friend. <laughs> Beautiful. So anyway, my question, to, my question to you was, uh, you know, uh, I was actually reading a, 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 an article from a, a party that I'm, I'm, I was, you know, I was involved in. It's a Socialist Party here in the United States, which 
actually uh, Kishama Sawant, who is a socialist, the only, one of the only socialist council, city council members in the, in the United States. She's in Seattle. She does a lot of work there, a lot of amazing work there against Amazon. If no one's heard of her, uh, definitely look her up. Um, but um, uh, I was quoting uh, actually a former uh, a former member ten- of uh, a m- member of militant tendency, which was the Labor Party kind of wing, from what I understand. Is that right? Yeah, it was a Trotskyist wing of the Labor Party. It was uh, quite powerful in the 1980s. Right. Um, yeah, and Derek Hatton apparently was was part of that, and he's he's turned pretty pretty. Pretty darkly in the, in uh, yeah, the right, right he, he, he became a male model. <laughs> Did he really? And, which I always predicted. Wow, that's not surprising actually. Yeah, he kind of, fan- I kind of, he kind of fancied that kind of uh, <laughs> uh, being that posh, I guess. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, the, so the proposals that kind of at the time were were to democratize uh, oversight of the of of uh, police forces. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, well, uh, definitely. I mean, can, uh, what can be done? This what slogan, can be done to stop yeah, this? Because it affects, it affects all working class. Yeah, of course. Uh, this slogan, uh, defund the police, is of course bonkers. Uh, in the society we've got to defund the police would simply mean an immediate exponential growth in private security firms who wouldn't even have the limited forms of democratic control and accountability uh, that the police do. Uh, So you'll never catch me demanding uh, defunding the police. We need uh, the Uh, police. I I, I had called to call the police only uh, a day or so ago. Uh, Within 24 hours, they've told me they can't do anything to help me and the case is closed, uh, which is unfortunate. Uh, But I'm never going to support defunding the police because nobody needs the police more than poor people and the working class because they are the victims of most crime. Uh, But democratic control of anyone exercising power is a democratic demand that cannot be denied and must never uh, cease to be made. And we don't have I've got all kinds of questions, for example, about this weekend. Why, why was Whitehall not closed uh, so that nobody could get near the Prime Minister's house? Why were there not two barricades uh, formed by the police at either end of Whitehall? And then that wouldn't have happened, at least not there. Secondly, why did you charge down Whitehall on horseback? What could possibly go wrong? in a police horseback charge. I've been in horseback charges. I've been kicked by a horse on a picket line outside Wapping, a picket line against Rupert Murdoch. I've been charged with police horses. No good can come of it. Using police horse charges, cavalry charges, against unarmed demonstrators is a crazy idea. And it went disastrously wrong. It could have gone even worse. Uh, anybody could have been killed by that horse, including the policewoman uh, that was on its back. Uh, so I've got lo- yeah. now. How do I raise these questions of accountability? There are precious few opportunities to do so, uh, and so we need more uh, democracy 
and accountability in the police force. Last word to you, Shannon. Yeah, and I'm for, you know, I'm for the proposal of, 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 of local elections. I don't, you know, I don't have much hope there, uh, seeing the, 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 the uh, political consciousness of folks, uh, well, here and, and, and in your country and, and in many countries. Uh, but, uh, but in the hopes that, you know, we, we have at least local elections for, for, uh, of, of regular folks, you know, normal working class people for democratic oversight of, of, of local police forces. Shannon, great call. Thanks for that. Here's Richard in California in Concord on uh, Jesse Ventura. Uh, he's my uh, great hope. Have you got good news for me, Richard? Oh, we do, George. And thank you for taking my call again. We greatly appreciate it as Welcome. always. Tell so, us, tell us uh, what's happened. Absolutely. So, just in the last week, within the last four days, we started a petition to the Green Party, and we're getting signatures to show that they should draft Jesse Ventura at the convention. And uh, within the last four days, we've already gotten over 6,400 signatures, which technically puts us above the current primary frontrunner in terms of popular support. That's good news. It is very exciting. You know, some people might say they're not necessarily registered Greens, but... I would say that's kind of the point, isn't it? Like, I'm 26, and the Green Party has been trying to grow and campaign on reaching 5% of the general election vote for the entirety of my life. In 1996, they even drafted Ralph Nader to run, despite him not endorsing the party platform, because the party knew that his image would attract more funding and membership. So, I mean, frankly, if people want an easy way to immediately help us make Jesse Ventura uh, a reality as a candidate, the best thing that they could do is go to change.org slash Ventura 2020 and sign our petition, uh, which we're trying to use to prove that he has the name recognition to revitalize the party and help unite the American left. Well, there's absolutely no doubt at all uh, that if Jesse Ventura entered the race, especially this race, between these two planks of wood uh, that are running for the two main parties, uh, Ventura would immediately be a credible third-party challenger. Uh, he has name recognition, he has military background, he has governmental experience, he has charisma, he can speak, he is capable of appearing on any debate uh, against anyone anywhere and holding his own. The Greens would be crazy to pass him up. Oh yeah, and he, I would say importantly too, he has a clue like, look at how Trump and Biden have responded to the police brutality issue. Trump has tried to sick the military on nonviolent protesters, and Biden's asking police to shoot them in the leg instead of the chest. Like, I think the choice is obvious if you look at Governor Ventura's public comments. I absolutely uh, agree. And I mean, when he was on here uh, last week or the week before, uh, he, he indicated that he couldn't do it as, a, as an independent uh, because... Uh, of his health care uh, package and his wages. He'd have to give up his job uh, in television, in RT, as a matter of fact. Uh, now, there must be someone or some collection of people uh, that can make up the shortfall in those two things, surely. I would hope so. You know, we're trying to reach out to the governor and see if that would be a possibility. Uh, in the meantime, 
what we've also noted in the governor's public comments is a lot of his concern was about if he could secure the Green Party's nod, right? If he could get the nomination by the Green Party, the governor is confident that he'd be able to get into the White House, and we support that too. And so the question for us is, if we can prove to the governor that he has the support to win the nomination at the Green Party convention, we think he'd be on board. When is uh, that convention, Richard? When is the convention? That convention is, it's the weekend of July 9th, and it's an online-only convention this year. It's a Zoom meeting. Uh, you can find out more information on that on the Green Party's United States website. I think it's gpus.org. That's fascinating. Uh, look, keep us posted, Richard. Uh, speaking personally, absolutely anything I can do uh, to help Governor Ventura into the race, I'm ready to do it. Thank you indeed for the call and the update. Let's hear from Julian in London, who was at both of the Black Lives Matter protests. Julian, go ahead, please. Hi there, George. Yes, I was. And I was going to say, tongue-in-cheek, that without a police officer on its back, that horse might have accidentally hurt a white person. But to be fair to the Met, they acknowledged that they had a problem with institutionalized racism and they did something about it. And now is the time for the police in America to do the same thing, I think. And the Met is not perfect, but I think they made steps that other police forces haven't done yet. Well, that's true, uh, but uh, I'm far from confident about the leadership of the Metropolitan Police. I have absolutely no confidence in the Mayor of London. Where is he, for a start? Mm. Uh, wh mm. when, when London's burning, uh, where is the Mayor? He's in a different if, bunker, maybe. It, it, yeah. If I, if I was the Mayor of London, I'd be on every news bulletin. I'd be out on the street. I'd be trying to uh, ensure uh, that uh, legitimate points were made and that people and property were not put in danger, and that the police were working properly. And mm -hmm. he's just, he's the mayor. I've got no confidence in the commissioner either. Well, to give you a sense of what happened at both uh, protests and um, the, co the contrast, I felt like today was the real one. Uh, and the eerie silence when uh, people took the knee, that was the that was the most uh, powerful moment, and a lot of people at the the parliament yesterday. I think they were the angry people that you talked about. Everyone knows where, where parliament is, and I think maybe a lot of them just sort of pitched up because they go to any riot they can get their hands on. But the people today really were making a point, and they were making it to the American embassy. Obviously, there were chants of things like. Trump out, Boris out, and people putting uh, whatever uh, slant on it. And the points we make about uh, the London Met and the, the situation in London in particular and the UK as a whole are relevant. But today's protest was very much directed at America. And that, that's where, this, where the spark of this problem uh, began. We, we, and there were other flags as well, which I was, I was happy to see. And there were other names we, we could mention. Uh, I want to mention... Uh, Iyad Halak, who was killed in a similarly unjust circumstance just recently. But for a protest for a focal point around George Floyd, uh, today was something very powerful. Uh, thank you for that, Julian. Uh, one of the, or two of the things that really struck me about today, and you can see them on our pictures there, 
the uh, placards are all homemade. Uh, they're all homemade by young people. And there's an enormous percentage of today's crowd uh, who are young black people. Uh, and I'm so happy uh, that they engaged in what has been up until now overwhelmingly a peaceful, dignified protest which needed to be made. Thank you, Julian. Uh, here's a poll number two. Was the defacing of Churchill's statue in Parliament Square on D-Day of all days justified? A, yes, B, no. And I've already made clear uh, my view. Uh, Winston Churchill is a member of our Hall of Fame and his name is on our wall of shame. And I put him there on the same night uh, because Winston Churchill was all of these bad things uh, that people say about him. But if it were not for Winston Churchill becoming our Prime Minister in 1940, uh, then I assure you uh, that the quizlings in the British government and in the British ruling class would have surrendered to Hitler. And therefore, all those people who are saying, no, it was the brave soldiers uh, who fought the war uh, that saved the country. There would have been no war to fight if Churchill had not come to power uh, because Chamberlain and Halifax and almost half the cabinet and over half of the MPs were ready to sign a surrender peace with Hitler. And it was only Churchill's opposition to it and his determination to fight on against Hitler, against the Nazi siege that had then uh, formed uh, along the channel ports in France uh, that saved our country uh, from surrender and therefore defeat, which is the only final defeat, surrender. And I've written, as you know, a, a novel I'm writing, its sequel now. Uh, the book that's out now is called Queensway. You can get it even on Kindle now. Uh, and it deals with the counterfactual possibility uh, that Hitler had managed to cross the Channel and did conquer at least a part of Britain. And who, it asks, would have been the resistance and who would have been the collaborators? Uh, so my, uh, my vote on this one is very definitely no. The defacing of Churchill's statue on D-Day above all days was not justified. But you can vote A for yes and B for no. You can vote on my uh, Twitter feed. I'm very upset about the result uh, of the first poll. Uh, Jim says, uh, uh, no, he's done that. I've done that one already. And Captain Thunk, I've done. Chris says, yes, people seem to learn more about slave traders when their statues are ripped to the ground than they ever do at school. This is the point brilliantly made in, in uh, two lines uh, by Chris. If not for the pulling down of this statue today, the vast majority of people in Britain would never have known that a statue and schools, clinics, parks in Bristol was called after a man who stole 80,000 Africans 
enslaved them all the way to America and became filthy rich as a result. Brilliantly made point, Chris. And now, of course, amongst all the big challenges that our country faces, economic challenges, challenges of social peace and justice, one being impossible without the other, uh, we are still uh, facing a major crisis of the coronavirus pandemic. We are the worst in the whole world. This is an important point that so many are in denial about. Well over 900 people per million have perished, died, and are now in the earth because of the coronavirus. 65,000 excess, so many idiots out there, either pretend or can't grasp this point. These are not 65,000 people who just died in the six months of this year. This is 65,000 excess deaths, i.e., can I spell it out for you? Over and above are the average deaths over the last five years in Britain. And most of that 65,000 have been since March, making it even more shocking. Now, it's true uh, that most of them uh, were elderly people and people who already had underlying health conditions. For me, that makes it more shameful, not less. That makes it less defensible, not more. And I believed, and still do, in the maximum mobilization of public resources and public organization uh, to confront this crisis, as was done in other countries, most significantly in China, in Vietnam, in Kerala, in India, in South Korea, in New Zealand. It was done there, and it worked there, but it didn't work for us. We have uh, catastrophically failed in this coronavirus challenge. And throughout it, we have had the benefit uh, of the presence of Dr. Ranjit Brar, who is a consultant, a physician, and a surgeon. And I'm glad to say he's stuck with us throughout, and he's with us again this evening. Uh, Dr. Ranjit, thank you again for joining us. I see you're back at the front line. Um, I want to ask a question that a lot of people have been asking me. What happened to the idea of shielding. What will now happen to those sectors of the population acutely at risk now that the quarantine, lockdown, social distancing has clearly collapsed in ruin? Thanks, George. Good to be back with you once again. Um, well, the concept of, to just answer your question very specifically, a very interesting show tonight, George, and, and lots of interesting questions you've touched upon. Um, but this specific question of shielding uh, is not one that works well. So the concept is that rather than having a good sight of where the virus is and isolating people who test positive with the virus, 
and preventing those individual people from infecting others and therefore protecting the whole of the community from getting the virus, which has been the very successful strategy employed elsewhere, that in fact you let the virus run through the population and you only have to worry about the patients who are at highest risk. And we saw right from the beginning, I think from the first time I was with you, that patients over 80 have a very high incidence of uh, mortality, risk of death from the virus, as high as 14.14% of people who are over 80 who get the virus will die, and that's massively high. But equally, 70-year-olds have a slightly lower risk, but a high risk. 60-year-olds have a slightly you know, lower risk, but a high risk. And so everyone really 50 and over, you could say, was at high risk. And as we discussed, the median population, uh, the median age of the population in our country is 40.5. So half of our population, so 33 million in this country, are over 40, over 40 and a half years. And all of them really are at an increased risk. You can say the population below there are at low risk, but as we have seen, that is not zero. So there's a massive percentage of our population who are at high risk from a strategy where we just try and shield the high-risk population. We know 4 million people have diabetes. They're at particularly high risk. We know a very large number of people have cardiac problems or hypertension. And uh, I saw Gayatri, your, your wife, share a post explaining that because this virus enters uh, the lungs via a particular receptor, the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 receptor, the ACE2 receptor, that's the way it gains entry into the lungs. This is a receptor which is widely expressed on the vasculature, and it's been seen that there's a, a kind of inflammatory vasculitis, an increased risk of uh, also thromboembolic events of deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism amongst patients who have uh, coronavirus. Um, so that's why people we think who have high blood pressure and cardiac related diseases are at particularly high risk. That's a massive group. And the concept of shielding all of those and the virus spreading freely throughout the population but isolating 10, 15, 20% of the population, it's not feasible. And we know that's particularly not feasible once you start seeing members of your family because children going to school know their parents, their parents know their parents, their parents are that group. And so it becomes very hard to support and care for that large group of elderly and vulnerable patients. And the best strategy for stopping them getting the virus is to stop the virus spreading. Um, if I could just say one more short point, I'm aware, sorry, I speak too much length sometimes, George, but essentially we know that from the latest antibody studies that perhaps only 7% of the population of the whole of the UK, so you said 65,000 people, we think, have died who shouldn't have died under normal circumstances, when we're attributing that essentially to the effects of coronavirus, and that's probably a true estimation, which you're quite right, gives almost but certainly more than 900 deaths per million in our country, which is the worst rate. Um, and that's from just 7% of our population having the virus. So it doesn't take a, you know, a, a deep understanding of mathematics to realize that it still could be a very large group of patients, a very large group of the population who succumb to this virus if we now open up measures without having a very good sight of where the virus is. And that's really been my criticism all along. We're not doing those things, the simple things of testing uh, and really knowing where the virus is in order to control it. Rather, this kind of repressive lockdown of the whole population 
which, yes, suppresses the R rate while it's in operation, but the minute you let go, the R rate will go out of control again. And I'm afraid that we're likely to see that over the next few weeks, George, despite the lower numbers that we're definitely seeing in terms of deaths and cases currently. They're not zero. Uh, they're really quite significant numbers. If 7% of the population were infected with a virus which killed 65,000 extra people in just a few months, almost all of them from March onwards, it follows uh, that if another 7% of the population get the infection, uh, that there will be another potentially huge rise uh, in the number of deaths. Now, it's quite clear to me uh, that uh, there never really was a lockdown. The 24 million flights coming in, uh, the Cheltenham Festival, the football, the concerts and so on, and the unnecessary, inessential workforce uh, being continued to be sent to work. Now that we've abandoned, as we effectively now have, abandoned the idea of social distancing and, uh, and quarantine and lockdown, it seems to me, therefore, and I'm not a doctor, but neither am I a mathematician, uh, but I don't think you need to be Einstein to work out that there's a real danger of a massive increase in infections and deaths. There really is a very real danger. Now, I personally find lockdown relatively restrictive, but I'm still at work. I'm still traveling in order to get to work. I have a fairly full and active life, so I don't find it really repressive as others do. And I totally understand why people are champing at the bit to get out of lockdown and back to work. But what that really requires, and what has been done in those successful cases that you mentioned, um, is isolating the virus and controlling the virus. It actually doesn't need a vaccine to control the virus. China has eliminated the virus from its population by using public health measures in the correct and targeted and focused way. And you know, there's no real excuse for not doing that other than there was a cost involved. Now, when the economic crash happened, and we're still in a period which is very likely to become an economic depression of the 21st century, such are the, is the economic downturn of the unemployment figures. When that happened, our government put in place a lot of measures and still is referring to that economic depression as just the coronavirus effects. And indeed, the market was very happy to find out that uh, we are coming out of lockdown. There's been an increase in the valuation of the pound. I mean, the pound sunk to very low levels, but nevertheless, progressively, as those measures have been enfolded by our government, uh, business has shown that they're very happy as, as, as business goes to the government and says, we don't want quarantining on flights. That's going to be bad for the airline industry. People will go out of business. I mean, it's quite, it's quite clear who is driving the policy. And it's not, unfortunately, the public health needs. This has been badly mismanaged from a public health perspective. Uh, and the levers of, uh, of, of control are very much in government hands. Government had the ability to respond in a balanced way. Uh, but rather it has, has ever chosen to advance the pre-existing measures, whether that was, you know, its ongoing uh, diplomatic and trade war with China, whether that was ongoing uh, promotion of big business and the interests of big business, whether it was ongoing drive towards austerity. It's had a very big spend, mainly directed at large business, mainly not supporting the poorest in the population. And the drive now to get back to work, I feel, is driven by business and, yes, puts the population at great risk. 
which is not to say it wouldn't have been possible to get out effectively from quarantine if we'd applied the correct measures, George. Well, China got out of uh, lockdown much more quickly with a tiny number of deaths, and we now learn uh, from its uh, latest economic figures that the economy is bouncing back strongly. Yet China is the whipping boy uh, for our government and the government of the United States, both of which, by comparison, have proved catastrophic in how they handled the same virus. Yeah, that's very true. And um, I know it's telling that um, uh, I mean, President Trump in particular has been very keen to label this the CCP virus, the communist virus, the Wuhan virus, the China virus. Um, our government has followed suit, indicating that there was some kind of inefficiency and delay, and, and uh, um, it's due to the repressive natures of the Chinese regime. It's that totally belied, really, by the facts. The United States has been appalling in its response, led by Trump, who, as we've seen, his increasingly bizarre ramblings in front of the media of the world. Uh, it's been an embarrassment, uh, but it's still referred to as the leader of the free world. If you contrast that, and they're driven now to say they want a trillion dollars worth of compensation from China, that China is responsible for an inherent market crash due to free market monopoly capitalism, which clearly it isn't. Uh, China is responsible for the virus, which clearly it isn't. China's response was fantastic. China gave that information to the world to allow us to respond. It was our governments who did not do so, and we need to hold culpable and accountable. If you actually look at the fact that uh, I think Xi Jinping in China came out with a rather balanced and you know, very mature move, which is actually to say we encourage a, a real-world inquiry to get to the bottom of these things, which will totally cut the ground from underneath the feet of the, of the United States imperialism in terms of its propaganda effort, uh, that China was prepared to make good the shortfall when the United States unilaterally withdrew all funding from the World Health Organization. So we've seen this before. You know, the United States wanted to use, the, for example, the United Nations in order to justify with the, the uh, screen of international law, its illegal campaign against Iraq, responsible for millions of deaths. Once again, the United States wants to you know, drive a diplomatic um, campaign against China. It would like to use the World Health Organization to do so. It would like to bully and bluster its way into forcing international bodies to follow suit. But you know, the, the facts just do not agree with the case that they're promoting. Uh, and I think, actually, you know, when we've seen China not only deal with its own virus, but give aid to the rest of the world, when you've seen that treated as almost a hostile act by our own governments, you realize that our governments are not honest brokers, they're not honest operators, they have very much got an axe to grind. Their real wish, you know, America's dream was for an American century, that this should have been the century with the collapse of communism, the collapse of the Soviet Union, that they have unbridled power, global control, and the spread of their military around the world very much proves that. And at heart of this conflict and their pushing of propaganda against China is forwarding that agenda. In fact, they're becoming relatively weaker economically and military, but they're extremely dangerous, George. I think I heard you say that it was wrong to call America a paper tiger. They're much more uh, dangerous than that. I think that's right. And but they are perhaps a wounded tiger. And it's now when they feel their power slipping that they're perhaps at their most dangerous. And I think we have to view that propaganda, that campaign, that continual war of disinformation, and Lord Andrew Adonis is a Labour 
appear. And his articles and outpourings are very typical of this. This is a many-sided, many-faceted campaign in which our political uh, and state organizations are deeply involved. Um, you have to look at that very carefully and see what underlies that is the will to dominate and exploit vast tracts of the earth. It's, uh, it's an aim that I think the British workers and the British people should not support, do not support. It's not in our interests. But we do have an interest in combating effectively this infection, and we must hold our government to account and insist on the measures that we know are effective to ensure that as many lives as possible are safeguarded from this point going forward, George. Dr. Rajiv, thanks as always for joining us. A masterful thanks. overview it's of Norma the situation in both Bristol. Uh, health Norma. and political. Where Thank do you, you stand on what happened today? Oh, do you know, George, I was upset with your um, vote. 51% didn't want to take it down, mm. the statue. I was I mean, uh, you can imagine how I feel. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm a Bristolian. I'm not surprised, to be honest, because um, the first thing, actually, we have got a, a concert hall here called the Colston Hall. Yeah. And it's being revamped, and the people who run the place want a new name. But there's such a lot of people that don't want a new name. So do we have to keep calling it the Colston Hall? Um, that yeah, is why, why not call it the Slavery uh, Hall? Uh, <laughs> why, why not call it... Uh, uh, the slavery park uh, uh, given to us uh, by a portion of the profits of a, a, a killer and a slaver. Well, it's a concertor, George, so you've got to be nice. Just call it Bristol Concertor. But the thing that really worries me is um, his statue, Colston Edgar, it should have been taken down a long time ago. You know, and it has been suggested that it would be recited at our museum, the big M shed, uh, there for people to go and see with the history of the slave trade. And today, when it was taken down, I wish they hadn't pushed it in the river because I'd want it taken out and shoved in the, put in the museum. Um, Don't worry, was... they'll dig it out, uh, Norma. You know that uh, that uh, the scrap value of bronze is yeah. about, that, that, that's about. I don't know, maybe £10,000 worth of scrap value there. I know, Someone I know. will have it out by the morning. Well, yeah, but stick it in the museum. But it was, I was very pleased when they took it down. God bless you, you and yours. Thank you, Norma, in Bristol. Uh, Gil is in California. Let's hear from Gil. Go ahead. George, hello from L.A. Um, I'm calling, you know, in reference to the defund the police statement being made. I think the hashtag could be a, a bit misleading because it's defund the police, but we don't. I don't think the idea is to eradicate the police. I think our goal is more to de to take a lot of those funds and place them elsewhere in the city. You know, we have a lot of ho a homeless problem here in L.A. That's one place where it can go to, and you know, also to just demilitarize de them a little bit because the guns they carry on the streets are, are very obviously they can't handle them. Well, that's right. Uh, there is absolutely no case uh, for a police officer to be done up like, uh, like a, a Navy SEAL in the middle of a war. That's just absurd. Yeah. That's asking yeah. for trouble. Yes. That's bringing fuel to the flame. Yeah. And, of course, the more, uh, the more firepower you've got, the more armor you're wearing, psychologically, the more uh, gung-ho... Uh, you're going to feel, and we know we know where that leads. 
Yes, sir. And that also bleeds onto future generations. What are they going to think? What they want to protest? They're like, I can't go out and protest. I'm going to be pepper sprayed in the face. I'm going to be shot. I'm the enemy now. Now protesting becomes the enemy. Very powerful. Gil, thanks uh, for making that call. Uh, Gurpreet is in Hertfordshire in England. Let's hear from him. Go ahead. Hi, uh, George. Uh, pleasure to be on here today. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Um, yeah, I just um, uh, comparing the situation in uh, the US to India. And um, in my opinion, I think it, it's a lot worse in India because uh, some, someone like uh, that policeman that killed that um, uh, George, um, he'd be promoted in India. And um, so uh, we'll wait and see, I suppose, uh, time will... History well, uh, will be I'll the tell judge. you what, brother, if he, if he hadn't been videotaped, uh, uh, he wouldn't be on trial for murder, and if there had been no protests, uh, he'd have been on trial uh, for manslaughter third degree. So the yeah. charge is uh, much uh, higher now, and he's not going to be promoted, he's uh, going to be tried. Uh, but if it hadn't been filmed and nobody gave a toss about it, uh, he probably would have been promoted also. Um, like, I'm just comparing again to India. Like, over there, you have to, you have to wait until a policeman retires before he loses his political influence, and then, um, and then you've got a hope of maybe trying to get some justice. Yeah. And I was just comparing, like, uh, I saw the, the statues taken down, and uh, I was just thinking, well, there's one of... Uh, uh, Gandhi in uh, London as well, so um, it would give me um, great pleasure if that was taken down as well. Why? And, um, what have you got against Mr. Gandhi? Well, uh, firstly, um, what he wrote about the South African blacks, um, he was trying to get uh, privileges for Indians, as in, uh, he, I think it was, he called them Kathirs, uh, so a degradatory term. Uh, so, um, like a, he was a, a, a proponent of the caste system, so he wanted um, he wanted to place Indians uh, between the whites and the blacks, rather than trying to dismantle inequality in itself. So um, um, yeah, so I think he, he, he should be he should have been the first one they took down. And then not only that, the uh, I don't know if you know the Dalits or the Untouchables in India. Of course. So um, uh, there was this, uh, uh, in Ramsey McDonald, I think it was, with the community, uh, he was the uh, Labour Party politician, uh, and um, so he had this communal award in India in 1932. So what happened was that um, they awarded uh, uh, separate electorates uh, to the different communities, Muslim, Sikhs, and um, also to the untouchables who um, wanted their own political representation directly with the British. So what Gandhi did, he went on a, a, a fast to death to try and force the um, uh, the, uh, the Dalit leader Ambedkar at the time, who was uh, uh, in the, uh, he wrote the Indian Constitution as well. So he, he tried to force them to stay within Hinduism. What they they were being exploited by the high high castes, and so to get rid of that exploitation, they wanted to get uh, their own separate electorate so they could. Uh, have their own community representing them. But so, so what Gandhi did is that he forced them to take reservations. So he went on that fast to death, and the threat there was to try and uh, make, um, uh, what was it, they, um, to try and force them to, for, to be under the mercy of the Brahmins, basically, the high caste. Yeah. So 
Um, and uh, one, uh, there's a Michelle Alexander. She wrote a book, The New Jim Crow. So she likened the whole uh, thing in America being um, like the car system. And what happened in the UK was that there was some uh, anti-caste legislation that was being put through, and that was uh, stemmed by the Indian government as well. So the Indian government's got very large tentacles that they get everywhere, and um, they try and confuse the issue, and they try and mm. blame the British. There, there's this like uh, narrative now going that it was the British that introduced the caste system into India. Nah. You know, so, um, Unfortunately, not true. Uh, that's one crime that we are not responsible for in India. Thanks uh, very much for that call. We're receiving reports of violent scenes right now outside Parliament. Police are clashing with protesters. Again, you can see on the screen, this is live, I think. It's happening uh, right now. A very significant number of police with batons drawn, uh, charging. Uh, I don't see what they're charging, who they're charging, or why they're charging. Uh, but it looks uh, pretty ugly, I must say. Uh, and, uh, and, and squares with the opening remarks that I made about the pattern of events. Large, peaceful demonstrations in the early part, and then an interregnum of some hours, and then real serious violent clashes. Uh, and uh, God save us uh, from that. We think this is near Parliament Square. Uh, I don't recognize, uh, it's in Victoria Street, actually, as a matter of fact. No mounted police, as they seem to have learned the lesson uh, of that. Anyway, was the defacing of Churchill's statue on D-Day justified? Yes, 30%, no, 70%. And 1,703 of you have voted so far. You've got three minutes to cast your uh, vote. And uh, Carl says, my grandfather fought against fascists. He was socialist to the core, but he fought for his country and went into battle on Churchill's words. Churchill was not perfect, but without doubt helped lead the UK along with its allies to victory. Well said. Drew says, no, the press protesters have the freedom uh, to deface uh, the monument because Churchill and others stood up to genuine fascism. There's a lack of education and respect at these protests. And Douglas says, if anyone's in any doubt about racism in the USA, watch 13th on Netflix. Strong watch. It clearly shows the worst. I have heard that from more than one person and will myself uh, check it out. Samson says... I'd like to know if those voting to keep the statues of slave traders would also support maintaining statues of Hitler. What a very good point. Or are slave traders deemed less abhorrent? The truth is that for a significant number of people in this country, they don't regard Colston as abhorrent. Are they pull one rabbit out of the hat after another to justify uh, their... Uh, closet support uh, for Colston. The Arabs took slaves before we did. The Romans took us as slaves. Uh, they're ready to dredge any depth uh, to justify or obfuscate their own essential support. 
for the British slave trade, not the Roman one, and not the Arab one, but the British slave trade in the 19th century, which enslaved tens of millions of Africans whose children are still with us and on our streets in the US and in Britain. It's been marvelous for me. Come back next week if you agree. Same time, same place. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.